to the church in Ephesus. I'll be reading from the book of Ephesians, his greeting in verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You all may be seated. Um, man, that worship was so good this morning. Uh, as Adrian said earlier, my name is Alan Michael. I am the children's and young adult pastor here at Grace. Um, and I'm so thankful to be with you all this morning. I want to welcome you if you're new here to Grace this morning. Uh, so glad that you came uh, to worship with us today. Uh, we are starting a new sermon series uh, today in the book of Ephesians. And the sermon series is called Reflect. Everybody say reflect. 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 Good. Y'all are awake. Um, so the new sermon series that we're going to go through is called Reflect. And we're going to walk through the book of Ephesians. So over the next few weeks, we're going we're to trek right all along through this book. But when we get to chapter 4, we're actually going to start a new sermon series uh, uh, at, at that point. Pretty much because the book of Ephesians uh, has two major themes that split right down the middle. So when we get to chapter 4, we're going to start a new sermon series, but we're going to go all the way through the book of Ephesians. So this morning, if you would, turn in your Bibles um, to the book of Ephesians. This morning uh, is going to be kind of an introduction to Ephesians. I'm going to give you some historical background of what's happening here in Ephesus, but I'm also going to give you an overview of what the book of Ephesians was written for um, and why Paul wanted to write this letter to the church in Ephesus specifically. So if you are here and you take notes, uh, there'll be a lot of information to take notes on this morning. If you're here and you don't take notes, there's still going to be a lot of information this morning. So I uh, uh, just want to let you know. Uh, the book of Ephesians, though, uh, John Calvin, this was his favorite epistle. Uh, this, the book of Ephesians, was known by many in the theological spheres as what's called as the queen of the epistles. John McKay, who was the former president of Princeton Theological Seminary says that it is the greatest, maturest, and most relevant of all Paul's works. He says that it promises unity in a world of disunity, reconciliation in place of alienation, and peace instead of war. This book, we will see, has very contemporary thoughts that if you read it through and you apply these truths, you almost think that Paul was writing it to us. And that's what he is talking about. The first half of the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters, focus on theology. Very theological. The second half of Ephesians, chapters 4 through 6, are extremely practical. Paul splits it right down the middle. It is, in many circles, as the most important and most relevant epistle. And we will see in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2... That Paul calls the Ephesians faithful. He calls them faithful. It's very important. So this morning, the two truths that I have for you uh, this morning are going to focus on what faithfulness is, what faithfulness brings according to the book of Ephesians. Now, this understanding of faithfulness is not comprehensive in nature. We're not going to go through everything that faithfulness entails. But we are going to pull straight from the book of Ephesians what Paul would consider as Faithful. And so our first truth this morning is that faithfulness reflects on what God has done. Faithfulness reflects on what God has done. If you will look in verses 1 and 2, 
He says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the, the, the verse 2 where it says grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, this was a very common greeting in Paul's day. He uses this same greeting in other places. So there's not much to take from this, but we do see Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Paul calls himself an apostle. An apostle is someone who is sent. An apostle is someone who is sent. In other words, it could be a messenger. And Paul knew that's exactly what he was, and that's why he said this was by the will of God. If we reflect on Paul's journey, what happened with Paul is that Paul was someone who actually persecuted those who followed Jesus. He was one who killed them. He would chase after them. He would make sure that their mouths were shut if they were preaching the name of Jesus, if they were praying in Jesus' name. No, 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 no. Paul was having none of that until one day he was on the road to Damascus and Jesus appeared to him. Jesus began to speak to him. And he blinded his eyes. And from that day on, Paul's life would never be the same. Paul knew that he was sent by God. As a matter of fact, he sent a man named Ananias to go speak to Paul. And this is what Jesus had to say. If you look in Acts chapter 9, he says, For the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul remembered that it was Jesus Christ who sent him. It was by the will of the Father that he would go. It was not on his own doing. He knew that, that he was an apostle sent by God. And so he wrote to the believers to remind them about what God had done. Now, we have to understand that when Paul was sent out, he, he planted many churches around the area of Asia Minor and Greece and Macedonia. And he kind of trained these churches to grow in the way that they were. They were, they were kind of like his spiritual children, if you will. And so he, he visited with them, and he spoke with them, and he, he instructed them, and he reminded them, and he wrote to them because he wanted to see them grow. And the church in Ephesus was the same way. And so Paul wanted to remind the Ephesians in the midst of what they're going through, which we will get into in just a second, to remember what God had done. Now, for husbands in the room, getting your wife to remember things that you have done becomes normal practice, am I right? Like, like I'm going to be completely transparent here. So, like, raise your hand if you're with me, because I'm opening up to you on stage, and I want you to be honest, too. Raise your hand if you have ever, like, washed the dishes or put them in the dishwasher and then, like, made sure your wife knew that it happened and that you did it. Anybody else? Yeah. And, and you expected a parade to happen right after, right? Yeah, like, like for, for real. Yeah, like, like, your wife may do 99% of everything else, but... You did the dishes, am I right? Like, we can't have them forget about what we have done, which is do the dishes once a month, right? So, but Paul, Paul is actually not reminding them of what Paul has done. Paul here is not bragging on himself. He is calling to the Ephesians to say, listen, I want you to remember what God has done. Reflect on what God has done. That is something to be celebrated. And then he goes on this list in these first three chapters of all that God has done. 
Paul was addressing several needs uh, in, in Ephesus. Uh, one, of the biggest, one of the biggest issues that they were facing was the goddess of Artemis. The goddess of Artemis was the deity of this city. She was the goddess of fertility. And there was a temple in Ephesus that was built in her name and is actually one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It was very, very large. It was built in about 800 B.C., and it was destroyed in 356 B.C. The, 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 the city of Ephesus went through three separate rules in the span of about six to 700 years. At one point, they were controlled by the Persians. At one point, they were controlled by the Greeks. And at one, per, at one point, they were controlled by the Romans. And through all three different nations ruling over them, there was one thing that remained throughout the entire time, and that was Artemis. Artemis was always the deity. If there was any continuity with what the people of Ephesus knew, it was Artemis. And they worshipped Artemis. There's a story uh, in, in Acts about this uh, silversmith who, who was worried about Paul had come. Paul was speaking. If you've ever read Acts chapter 17, Acts, or Paul gives this, this great understanding of who God is, that he is not a God who can be bound in temples who are made by man. Well, there's a silversmith in Ephesus. His job is to make these things. He makes statues on behalf of Artemis and fills them in the temple. So now you got this guy coming saying, no, 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 no. The God that I serve is not served by the hands of man. So he's worried about them defaming Artemis, but he's also worried about that he's going to lose his livelihood. What am I going to make if, if I'm not making it for the gods? So he starts a riot in Ephesus. A riot builds up and they begin to attack the Christians who are there, but it is quickly put to rest, but that gives you an understanding of the mindset that is, around, that is around Ephesus during this time. Paul, again, is reflecting on what God has done. He is telling them, hey, you need to remember what Jesus has done. And he says, specifically, I want you to remember his works of salvation. Everybody say salvation. We're going to dive through real fast. I'm going to go through several of the verses in, in the first three chapters, and it is all about salvation. So if we look at, 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 at chapter 1, verse 7, he says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. In one thirteen, he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, verses 4 or 5, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he had loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. In 2, 13. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In 3.6, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. If you are in here this morning and you're having a hard time remembering what God has done, look no further than the first three chapters of Ephesians. Because it applies just as much to us as believers in Christ as it did to the church in Ephesus at that time. Nothing right there was specific to the Ephesians. It was to everyone who follows Christ. 
The good news that you have been saved by grace through faith. It is not of your works. This is how great our Jesus is. And he's saying, never forget, reflect on God's goodness and his love constantly. That's what he is saying. I praise God that I am not who I used to be, but I am who I am through Jesus Christ. If you're in here and you're wondering what it means to be a faithful Christian in a society that is dragging you down It is to reflect on what God has done. Remember what he has done. He has brought you from death into life. He has taken your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh. You were once hostile in mind, but he reconciled you back to him by the blood of his son, Jesus. You were created and then he redeemed you. You were once far off, but then you were adopted as sons and daughters and fellow heirs. And I heard someone say one time that the only thing that we bring to salvation was the need for it. He did it all. And I praise God he did. Because up to me, if it were up to me, I would be nowhere close. Nowhere close. If you're sitting in here and you are overwhelmed in your job or you're, you're sitting in here and you're overwhelmed because your marriage is not what you thought it would be. If you're sitting in here and you're wondering if singleness is going to plague you and leave you miserable. Please reflect on what God has done. Because when you reflect on what God has done, you are finding your joy in him. When you find your identity in him, there's where you'll find your joy. And if your identity is surrounded in your circumstance, you will not find joy. Because even good circumstances can do about as much for you as the, as the goddess of Artemis could do for the Ephesians. Nothing. Remember who you are through the blood of Jesus. One of the, one of the best illustrations that I, could, that I could think of as I was reading through this is probably one of the greatest scenes in all of cinematic history from probably one of the top five movies ever made, The Lion King. I don't know why y'all are laughing right now. <laughs> the Lion King easily was my favorite Disney movie growing up. It's probably to this day still my favorite Disney movie. I love, I love, love, love The Lion King. But there's this one scene. Simba, he's grown now. He's wrestling with who he is. He, he knows that he is the son of Mufasa. Mufasa is dead at this point, And he knows, by the way, this is spoiler alert. But if you've not seen Lion King, that's your fault. Like, you, like... <laughs> I don't even know why I'm trying to give you a spoiler alert. Like, go watch Lion King. Okay, so Simba, Simba was grown, and he was, and he was struggling with his identity. He, he knew that he was the heir to the throne, but he didn't want it, right? That's where Simba was. And there's this moment where, he, where he's asking these questions like, like, who am I? What am I doing? And, and then you see Mufasa kind of appear in the clouds. And one of my favorite quotes in all of movie history, I quote it to my wife all the time, and it drives her crazy. Mufasa, in this James Earl Jones voice, looks down on Simba and says, remember who you are. (laughs) Right? Y'all know what I'm talking about. Give me chill bumps just thinking about it, right? (laughs) Yes. Yes. My wife's coming to the second service. She's totally going to shake her head and embarrass me because she'll say that all the time. But he did. He says, remember who you are. And if I could apply that to where we are right now, The book of Ephesians, the first three chapters, 
It's saying, look, you can remember who you are when you remember who he is. You can know for sure who you are in Christ when you reflect on what he has done. And when your identity is found in him, oh, you will have joy. So much joy. Paul is reminding them, please reflect on what he has done. Why is this important? Because our hearts naturally do not go, right? Our hearts naturally do not just follow Christ. They do not just naturally go towards him. We are fallen, sinful human beings. We can can absolutely see the miracles of God one day and forget them the next. We absolutely can. Last week, I was was preaching uh, to the kids and kids worship, and uh, I was literally preaching the entire book of Leviticus. And I don't know if you have ever tried to teach kids the book of Leviticus, but whoa, right? Um, Basically, it was the whole book of Leviticus, the rules and the laws that God was giving to the people. And I was explaining to the kids, this is why God is giving them these rules and these laws is because their hearts do not follow God's commands anyway. He gave them the Ten Commandments, and in like a minute, they broke the first two. Immediately. So he's given them these guidelines, this structure. And so I said, here, kids, let me explain to you like this. If I gave every kid in this room one large pizza, eight slices, one large pizza, and I said you could either eat the pizza or you could slap your friend in the face with a slice of pizza, what would you do? Well, the kids erupted, right? Oh, I'm slapping my friend square in the jaw. And I was like, case in point. Case in point. You would rather waste something free that's good for you, and you would use it to harm somebody else. That's what you would do. This is why there are rules, in, and this, I literally said this, this is why there's a rule in school you can't slap your friend in the face with pizza. Because you would do it. Because your heart is bent to break the rules. Your heart is bent not to follow Christ, not to do the right thing. That is how your heart is made. And if I could apply that to us, as we were sitting here and we were laughing at kids, crazy kids who would slap their friends in the face with pizzas, Seriously, we are this way too. Our hearts are just as sinful. Our hearts do not naturally follow him. And so we are to be reminded on his works. Paul had to remind them about this as they were being pulled in their different directions. So I'm going to ask you, where are you right now? Are you in a place where it's easy for you to remember the works of God, specifically in salvation? Are you in a place where that's where you find your identity? That that's where you find your joy? Or right now, are you finding your joy in your circumstances? Or are you finding your depression in your circumstances? Paul saying, reflect on what God has done. We're not even to the second truth yet. Okay. Um, I'm going to go ahead and jump. Truth number two. Our second truth this morning is that faithfulness, faithfulness redirects our hearts. Faithfulness redirects our hearts. So Paul had a lot of love for the people in Ephesus. He had a lot of love for the church 
uh, of, of the Ephesians. Uh, he visited them twice on two, two separate occasions. He visited uh, the people in Ephesus. And actually on his second visit, he stayed for nearly three years with them. He spent a lot of time with these people. He knew what was exactly what was going on. There was actually a man who came before Paul. His name was Apollos. And Apollos, the scripture says, was a good man. But he was actually teaching the people in Ephesus wrong theology. And so Priscilla and Aquila were there. And they pulled him to the side. And they were like, no, 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 you can't teach this. You have to, you have to understand that this is right theology. And so Paul was coming in after that. And so not only was Paul fighting uh, the, 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 the followers of Artemis, but he was also fighting Christians who at this point had a wrong theology. So Paul knew exactly what was happening. He was, he was correcting things, and he was, he was reaching out to people. And so, and so uh, Ephesus is located actually on the coastline of Asia Minor. It's located on the coast. It is a harbor city, and it is a well-traveled city. The people who would come from Italy and Greece, they would cross over the sea, and they would, that's the hub of where they would go. If they wanted to go inland to trade, they would have to come through Ephesus. Ephesus was the center of the trade routes in that area. It was also the political uh, capital of Asia Minor. It was the third largest uh, trading center west of Tarsus. It was the third largest city in the Greco-Roman Empire. In, in, In many circles, it was regarded similar to Athens, Greece, in its size and its influence. If that can help you understand the importance of Ephesus... It was huge. It was in the middle of trading routes. Paul knew if that he could start a church in the middle of this place, then, oh man, how the gospel could spread out from there. This place was super important. He spent a lot of time there. He knew the people. He loved the people there. It was regarded as the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. But what they were fighting, not only were they fighting the followers of the goddess Artemis, but they were also fighting materialism. This was a very prosperous city, very wealthy city. Money was coming in and out of here all the time. Matter of fact, there were pilgrims who would actually come and they would pay homage to the goddess of Artemis, come into the temple, and they would pay homage. They would just spend loads and loads of money in this place. Money was floating everywhere in the city of Ephesus. Materialism is something that they were fighting. And the church at this point was not big. It was still a small group of people, but they had some key leaders here. Priscilla and Aquila were there. And Paul even left Timothy here. Timothy was like, was like the man. And Paul was like, I'm leaving my best with you to lead you. That's how important he thought this city was. He left the best to fight the paganism and the materialism that the church of Ephesus was facing at this time. Paul knows what they're facing and is like a father and is leading and instructing them. And I know as parents sitting in this room, have you ever tried to instruct your children, your teenagers, even your young adults, what you felt like you were fighting upstream? You felt like what you were saying was going against the grain of what culture was saying and that you might have even been a deaf voice. That's what Paul is fighting right now. Paul is fighting the going against the grain, the, hey, hey, the, the materialism, the paganism that's wrapped up in here. Listen, that's not it. It's not what this is about. The Christian life is not that. That's what he is facing. The worldly pleasures are surrounding them, and 
The reality is that we aren't fighting the enjoyment of what God has given us, but we are fighting the desire to make something unholy take precedence in our lives. Paul was wanting to stop that out of the gate. The second half of Ephesians was written to to direct the hearts of the Ephesian church. And it spans all the way uh, from the unity of the church as a broad sense. And it goes very specific all the way to chapter six. So specific that he even tells that he even tells us how we as children should be in relation to our parents and parents to children, husbands to wives. He goes very specific, starts broad with unity of the church and dials down all the way to specific He gives the do's and don'ts. This is what you do. This is what you don't do. This can be an extreme turnoff for non-Christians. There's a lot of do's and there's a lot of don'ts about the Christian life. But here's the reality. When you enter into a covenantal relationship, period, there are do's and don'ts. Always. Let's take marriage, for instance. Marriage is a covenantal relationship. I think it goes without saying that you are to love your spouses, right? Well, that's a no-brainer. Well, that's a do. If you don't love your wife, there's some problems. Here's something you don't do. You don't cheat on your spouse. Why? Because it's breaking that covenantal relationship. It's breaking the covenant that you had made with your spouse. But it's the same way with God. That we are into enter, entering a covenantal relationship that started at salvation. It started at salvation, and then keeping our end of the covenant is pursuing Christ, pursuing holiness. It's not, just a, it's not just a list of do's and don'ts, but it is, hey, your heart's telling you to do one thing, but it's not what Jesus has called you to do. It is not going to further your walk with him or bring you closer to him. So this is what it looks like. That's what he's saying. So if I, inter- if I go back to the book of Leviticus, people often take Leviticus and they'll be like, well, Leviticus, man, that's just a bunch of rules. Man, that seems like bondage. It's an entire book of the Bible that's just rules and laws. And No, but what we don't realize oftentimes is that the book of Leviticus was actually freeing the people from their sin. This is what you're doing. But if you want to truly follow me, this is what it looks like. And this is what he says in Leviticus chapter 11. For I am the Lord your God, consecrate yourselves, therefore be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. God gives clear commands. This is what it's going to look like to follow me. Kevin DeYoung, in his book, The Hole in Our Holiness, he, he dives into the, what holiness looks like, and he also dives into what holiness does not look like. If you're, if you're wondering about holiness, and if there's a question like you just have no idea, then, then I would recommend this book. It is so, so good. And I'm going to read you a passage uh, in here that he talks about. Kevin DeYoung says this, Christians often equate holiness with activism and spiritual disciplines. And while it's true that activism is often the outgrowth of holiness and spiritual disciplines are necessary for the cultivation of holiness, the pattern of piety in Scripture is more explicitly about our character. It's less of the what and more of the why. 
That's what holiness is. It's less of the what and more of the why. To put it, to put it plainly, we are to love what God loves. We are to love what God loves. Paul wants them to redirect because their culture does not support this pursuit of holiness. What does it mean to be faithful in an unholy environment? It's to love what God loves. In the, same, in the same chapter, just on the next page, he talks about what this kind of looks like in our Christian walk, and he calls it the anatomy of holiness. And I want you to listen, and I want you to think, if I read something that applies to you. You can think of holiness to employ a metaphor as the sanctification of your body. The mind is filled with the knowledge of God and fixed on what is good. The eyes turn away from sensuality and shudder at the sight of evil. The mouth tells the truth and refuses to gossip, slander, or speak what is coarse or obscene. The spirit is earnest, steadfast, and gentle. The heart is full of joy instead of hopelessness, patience instead of irritability, kindness instead of anger, humility instead of pride, and thankfulness instead of envy. The sexual organs are pure, being reserved for the privacy of marriage between one man and one woman. The feet move toward the lowly and away from the senseless conflict, divisions, and wild parties. The hands are quick to help those in need and ready to fold in prayer. This is the anatomy of holiness. So let me ask you this. When you're at work, maybe you're at school, and you hear a dirty or a foul joke, do you walk away or do you initiate? If you're scrolling on Instagram and you see a half-naked girl or a half-naked boy, do you remove it or do you linger and allow the avenue for lust to take hold? What about when someone disagrees with you? Maybe it's on politics Maybe it's on sports. How do you respond? What about when your spouse messes up? Do you rub it in their face? Do you leave room for humility? What about when you're with your boyfriend or your girlfriend? Do you strive for purity or do you intentionally put yourself in situations to fall? I know what you're thinking, that, man, this sounds a lot like moralism. But it's not. It's to love what God loves. Holiness is not just doing what God loves. It's to love what God loves. It's more focused on the why than the what. That's what holiness is. So if we look at some passages here at the end of Ephesians, it says in, in chapter 4, verses 22 to 24, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 425, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. 429, for, we, for let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such 
as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. 432, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. 54, let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. The list continues to go on and on. And see, the book of Ephesians does sound pretty contemporary, doesn't it? Could easily be applied to our modern church, but the reality is that sin is sin in Paul's day and it's sin today. Whether it's 60 AD, 2019, sin is sin, it's corrupting hearts, and it's leading to destruction. That's the reality. That's the truth. For Stephen Paul, who says the wages of sin is death, sin entangles specifically with relationships. Almost 100% of the second half of Ephesians has to do with your relationship with other people. We actually have to have instruction on how to act in the Christian life with other believers. That's a reality. And it goes to show, like, back at Thanksgiving, we were, uh, we were with my wife's family and Christian, who at the time had just passed uh, one years old, and his cousin, uh, Lily, she's about six months older than he is, and they were in the floor playing with each other. It was really cute. We were all laughing. And Lily was learning at the time, like, where to point. You know, she knew her body parts. Like, here's my ears. Here's my eyes. You say, where's your belly? She would do this. And so... Her dad, Michael, said uh, at one point, hey, Lily, show Christian where his eyes are. And she Ric flared him right in the eyes. <laughs> like, I'm dead serious. Just, just went right in his. And poor Christian didn't know what to do, so he just took it. He was just like, no. Like, it was, it was so funny to watch. But, the, but, but here's the truth. Like, she has to understand how to re- respond and act around people, Right? Hey, we don't Ric Flair them in the eyes when we're showing them where their eyes are, right? This is a conversation that has to be had. And in the Christian life, for new believers especially, there is this understanding that we have to have instruction on even how to have relationships with other people. That's how fallible our hearts are. That we have to have this specific instruction. So to pursue Holiness. See, here's, a, here's another truth from Scripture is that Paul wasn't the only person who visited Ephesus. One of the disciples, John, actually spent time in Ephesus. He was the only one of the 12 disciples who were not killed for their faith and their following of Jesus. He was, in fact, exiled to the island of Patmos. Patmos is an island that is right off the coast of Ephesus. So it's easy to assume that John spent time there. John wrote the book of Revelation. And at the very beginning of the book of Revelation, we see him writing letter to seven churches. Guess who the first church is? Ephesus. The book of Revelation was written in about 90 AD. The book of Ephesians was written about 60 to 62. So John is writing this letter to The church in Ephesus, about 30 years after Paul wrote his letter, it's about 40 years after Paul visited 
Ephesus, Jesus speaks into John through this vision and says, this is what I want you to say to them. But I have this, sorry, I'm going to start over. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but I've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. 30 years after Paul calls them faithful, John is writing and says, you've abandoned your first love. But wait, I thought they had the best leaders. They had Priscilla and they had Aquila. Even Paul spent a lot of time there. They even had Timothy, right? No, sin is sin. And when you stop reflecting on what God has done and stop allowing the gospel to redirect your hearts towards him, the downfall ensues. So John is writing to them, saying that you have lost your first love. You have forgotten. You no longer reflect on what God did for you. You no longer allow the gospel to redirect your heart towards him. But if I just sin this once, God won't shock me down. No. No, he probably, he probably won't. But in, in that sin, you are breaking the covenantal relationship that you signed up for. The very covenant that Jesus died for. You see, God created us. He created man good. And then sin marred the image of God in us. It corrupted our hearts. So much so that scripture says that we were not only not believers, but we were hostile towards God. We were so far, scripture says we were enemies of God. We were estranged because of sin. So God, in his rich love, in his unfailing will, sends Jesus in the book of Philippians, which Paul wrote around the same time in the same prison, says that Jesus humbled himself in such a way that he left all the glories of heaven to take on human flesh, to take on the form of a servant, and that he would humble himself to death, even death on a cross for our sin, for us. There is no way that we can earn salvation. It's all through Jesus. And if you're sitting in here this morning and you do not know this Jesus, 
then my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would take your heart and transform you into a new creation. That you would understand and love this Jesus that we've sang four songs about, that we prayed about, that we've heard from his word this morning, that while we're here, I pray that you would know this Jesus. And if you're in here and you know Jesus and you are struggling to love what he loves, please know this. There is encouragement in this, that it's a process. It's not just overnight. I'm just going to love everything he loves. I'm still in this process. I'm still trying to learn to love what he loves. And it is not easy. It's a process. It takes time. It takes prayer. It takes encouragement with other believers. And I pray that you would, you would understand that. I'll pray for us. Father, you're so good. I praise you for your love. That you would send your son Jesus to do the unthinkable. To die on the cross for estranged, hostile enemies. But he did it in love, and he did it so that we could be redeemed, that we could be adopted, that we could be reconciled back to you. Lord, I praise you that you never give up on us. Help us as we go from here, Lord. If there's anyone in this room who does not know you, I pray that this morning they would know you and know your love. And for those who are trying to, to love what you love, that you would continue to encourage them and bless them and surround them with people who help them on this process. It's in your name we pray. Amen.